This is Erin Miller, and I'm here with Professor Jack Greenberg, who argued one of the five cases that was consolidated to be the momentous Brown versus the Board of Education, as well as 39 other Supreme Court civil rights cases. Professor Greenberg went on to be the director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and he is now a professor of law at Columbia. Professor Greenberg, I'm thrilled to be here with you. And thanks so much for joining SCOTUS Blogs, Race, and the Supreme Court program. It's a pleasure. So I just want to start off with some background about the Legal Defense Fund and your strategy in approaching the Brown versus Board of Education case. The strategy was devised, and the story that has been told, but maybe your listeners don't know it. The man called Charles Hamilton Houston, who was an exceptional and brilliant lawyer, the first black on the Harvard Law Review. Uh, and he um, devised a strategy of trying to persuade the Supreme Court to overrule the separate but equal doctrine. And he enlisted uh, to work with him another Harvard graduate called Nathan Margold. And Margold wrote something called the Margold Report. And it was a strategy of bringing case after case, which incrementally would, he hoped, persuade the Supreme Court to overrule segregation on the elementary and high school level. Well, what happened was um, these things never go exactly as planned. They started out with the attack at the graduate professional school level, because that's where the cases were. There were blacks who wanted to go, and um, they applied to some of the southern white colleges uh, and professional schools and they weren't admitted. Um, and so there were some cases already made. Later that was rationalized, I think, correctly, but um, it was said to be a, a conscious strategic choice. And I think it was just a serendipitous choice, because that's where the cases were. It was 26 years from the first case until the last case that every southern university got uh, at least one black in its graduate professional school, and not, or not in all of them, not across the board. When I came to work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, no black, and that was in 1949, no black had yet been admitted to an um, undergraduate college in the South. When we won some of the cases against, um, it was against the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma, the court said some provocative things in its decisions that gave us encouragement to go after the elementary and high school level. And that's what we did in 1950 in the cases that became known as Brown. I'm curious, how is it that you selected Brown v. the Board of Education and the other four cases that eventually made it to the Supreme Court? There were a lot of cases around. There were a number of cases around the same time that we didn't file, if we filed, we didn't take on up. The first case we filed was in 19, actually 1949 and 1950, called Briggs against Elliott, and that came from South Carolina. Um, that was originally filed as a separate but equal case. This was before the days that we were planning to go after segregation, and that case was filed as a case that um, just asked for equal facilities. The blacks didn't have indoor plumbing in their school, a hand pump. Um, almost no books in the library. Uh, the school was sort of a 
Scrapwood Shack, the local lawyer in South Carolina who had that case. And you have to know that Southern black lawyers, some of them were very good and rose far above their origins and training. Um, but some of them went to correspondence school or read law in a lawyer's office. He filed the case in the wrong court. And Thurgood Marshall had to go down there and refile it. At the time he went down to refile it, at that point, the NAACP had taken a vow that it would never file another separate but equal case. It would only file cases of integration. So here he had that case, he had to do something with it. And so the court asked for integration. That's how the South Carolina case got started. The case in Delaware, the case that I tried, whites went to school on school buses and blacks had to get to school as best they could. And so this um, mother came to us, who came to a lawyer that we worked with in Delaware, Lewis Redding, who I might add to give you an idea of the state of the law at that time. For 20 years he was the only black lawyer in the state of Delaware. At that time he was the only black lawyer. Came to him and said, could she please get her children on the bus? Because in the morning she had to go to work and she couldn't drive her daughter to school and then still get back to her job. So uh, she um, asked to get a, Redding to get a school bus and Redding said, no, he couldn't do that, but he could bring an integration case for her. And it was a case known as Brown in um, Kansas um, started similarly with um, an effort to get on the bus. And what did Marshall and the rest of your team uh, think about your chances once you got those five cases to the Supreme Court at getting the court to? Well, everybody had a different idea about it. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist. I thought we would win unanimously. He thought we'd win, but he worried about Justice Reed. Some other people thought we would win, but it would be like you know, seven to two or something. Well, we thought we would win because this was after, as I told you, the graduate and professional school cases in which the court had um, said some very condemnatory things about segregation. It didn't say that segregation was unconstitutional, but it talked about these are days when we need education, need the best education we can get. Uh, and uh, so forth. And at the Legal Defense Fund, I, I understand that you were one of the few white lawyers who, who were working on the cases at that point. What was that like? Well, the organization always was an interracial organization. When I came there, I replaced a woman who was white, Marion Perry. And one of the very first lawyers there was someone who, quite apart from Legal Defense Fund, had become a friend of mine, Milton Convitz, who was a professor at Cornell. But when I came there, I was the only white on the staff. But there always were whites. The board of directors was mostly black, with quite a few whites on it. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience of arguing the Delaware case in front of the Supreme Court? Well, I'm not a very good person to ask that sort of thing, because uh, I don't tend to become anxious. I mean, I was well prepared, and I just went ahead and I did it. Were there any memorable moments? Well, I mean, again, I'm the new kid on the block, and there are five cases, and I argued last. So Thurgood was making his points. He made them very well. Uh, one of the um, really signal points during the arguments was the lead lawyer on the other side was John W. Davis, who was considered to be the best Supreme Court advocate maybe in history. He'd been Democratic candidate for president of the United States in the mid-20s. Uh, he... Um, 
been Solicitor General and uh, was head of what's maybe the still one of the biggest law firms in the country, Davis Polk. John W. Davis at one point in the argument said, I say to my brothers on the other side, do not strive for the best because it is often the enemy of the good. And I'm reminded of the fable of the dog walking across a stream uh, and with a piece of meat in his mouth. And he looks down and he sees the reflection of the meat in the water and he goes after the meat in the water and he loses what he has in his jaws. And I don't think you should be seeking for an end of segregation just over a question of prestige. I mean, he was a great rhetorical error because Marshall got upset. Of course, that's all we want in cases of prestige. We want to be treated with the same respect as anybody else. Can you tell me a little bit about the atmosphere in the courtroom? Did, did people understand how momentous the case might be? Oh, yeah. People started lining up early in the morning uh, and usually to get in the Supreme Court. Well, now it's, it's become more politicized, so everybody knows about it. But back then, um, you could just walk right in there and get a seat. But for this case, yeah, people started lining up early in the morning. And if you got up to leave your seat, you weren't allowed to come back. I, I want to turn to what your reaction was to the decision itself when it came down. On reflection, what do you think about the unanimity of the decision, first of all? Well, I thought that was really very important. And Warren has said that until the last moment, Justice Reed was going to his dissent, that he felt segregation was unconstitutional, but he felt it would be sterile terrible reactions all over the South, which indeed it did. And it is said that, again, I, the history you have to, maybe we'll never know, that Justice Frankfurt went to him and said, look, Stanley, you dissent because you think someday the court will come around to your viewpoint. But if segregation goes, it's never going to come back. So it makes no point in dissenting. It will just make it more difficult to enforce the decision. He did not dissent. So it was unanimous. And did you have a good sense at that time about how fierce the resistance in the South would be to the decision? No, nobody did. It was called massive resistance. You had all kinds of otherwise sensible people denouncing the court, like the uh, Association of Chief Justices of State Supreme Courts denounced the Supreme Court. I was at the New York City Bar Association once when Earl Warren came there to speak, and somebody on a pick line tried to assault him when he went into the building. Did you expect how long it would take to implement the ruling, especially with the, the phrase? Well, the answer, the answer is no. No. And uh, when the court said all deliberate speed, I don't think they were referring to anything like that. They said they were referring to administration. So what was the next step for the Legal Defense Fund? Well, that in a way, it's sort of out of our hands. Our next step was to try to implement the Brown decision. And but then it became so things became so politicized. Richard Nixon, for example, ran on what he called the Southern Strategy, which was to uh, denounce any efforts to integrate and essentially demonize black people and civil rights advocates. So we had to defend against that. But then in 1961, the civil rights movement erupted, and almost all our attention. Of course, we had to defend ourselves against massive resistance. The southern states tried to put civil rights organizations out of business. They tried to disbar civil rights lawyers. Um, so we defended against cases like that. But then the sit-ins began. All our attention went to defending the sit-in demonstrators uh, and the freedom riders 
and then Martin Luther King came on the scene defending him. So we were not spending a lot of time trying to integrate it. What do you th what do you think the impact of the Brown decision was on the civil rights movement? Well, the court said that segregation in schools is unconstitutional, and said the reasoning of Plessy against Ferguson was unfounded. Like in the next week, it ended segregation at a beach and at a uh, city-owned theater. It was then taken as a prohibition of segregation. On buses, the Rosa Parks, or the bus she went on, the bus line, went to the Supreme Court, and they said segregation of the buses is unconstitutional. Brown against Board of Education is the whole opinion. So at what point would you say the Brown decision actually was enforced. Oh, well, then there was a case in, that I argued also in 1969 called Ale nobody talks about it, Alexander against Holmes County Board of Education. Um, and this was a situation in which little by little we were persuading the Supreme Court to sort of tighten the screw somewhat and the lower courts to uh, give some real meaning to Brown. Uh, and we'd won some cases which essentially closed off all the various avenues of escape. It appeared that the Fifth Circuit, which was in the deep southern states, was going to require actual integration. Uh, and Senator Stennis of Mississippi was chairman of the Armed Services Committee, uh, and he refused to bring the Armed Services Appropriation Bill to the floor of the Senate because he told Nixon that he had to be in Mississippi with his people because they were facing the imminence of an end to segregation in schools. Um, and so Nixon had his Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Robert Finch, write a letter to the judges on the Fifth Circuit saying that the lower court should study the decision further before they came to a, a conclusion. And the Fifth Circuit did that. They sent the cases back to the lower court. And these were our cases. And I, I tell this story, as I say, that with mock bravado, I um, paraphrase Marshal Foch at the Second Battle of the Marne. I don't know how your history of the First World War is. The Second Battle of the Marne, Marshal Foch said, my, my center is under attack, my left flank is crushed, my right flank is defeated, I attack. <laughs> so we went to the Supreme Court, here's the President against us, here's the Senate against us. We went to the Supreme Court. Uh, and in a special session before school began, they ordered immediate desegregation, uh, as in 69. And having done that, suddenly everybody obeyed. And there was immediate desegregation throughout the year. It went from like about 25% blacks being desegregated to 75%. Uh, and the southern schools became the most integrated schools in the country. Uh, and it remained that way for about another 10 or 15 years. Uh, 10, Politically, it started getting ratcheted back again, which is where it is now. Sort of moving to the present, I guess, along those lines. A lot of people say that the Supreme Court has, in recent years, undermined some of the things that it held in Brown. What's your view on that? Oh, definitely. Two big decisions of the Supreme Court. Well, it's not just the Supreme Court, but it's prejudice and then various economic and social forces. Whites began moving to the suburbs and blacks began uh, concentrating in the big cities. It hadn't been that way. Blacks were generally a southern, rural, and uh, not urban population. They came north to Detroit, to New York, and the court decided a case in 1972, I think, 
football Milliken against Bradley out of Detroit. And there was a case in which some lawyers tried to persuade the Supreme Court to um, have what, what referred to as the interdistrict remedy. That is, even though all the blacks were concentrated in Detroit and the whites in the Detroit suburbs, they wanted to integrate across the city suburban boundary line. And the Supreme Court said you couldn't do that. And then there was another decision called Dowell out, out of Oklahoma City, which said that once the school district is integrated, then it's as if it never had been segregated. And if it never had been segregated, the separate concentrations of blacks and whites in separate sections was not the doing of the state. It was no state action. And uh, as a consequence, the courts had no jurisdiction to require any integration. Of course, you can argue that just as readily the other way. The schools are state action. You compulsory school laws that run by the state. And then just like two years ago, as some communities began to see the value of integration and voluntarily began um, integrating across district lines, two cases, one in Louisville and one in uh, Seattle, Washington, um, the court said you couldn't do that uh, because in order to do that you had to have some sort of affirmative action policy. You had to decide who would cross the line, who wouldn't. You can't assign somebody to school on the base of race since he's turning brown on his head. I want to go back just a little bit uh, to your relationship with Thurgood Marshall. What was that like both personally and professionally? Well, we were I was a very good friend. I worked with him for 12 years. Then when he went on the bench, I stopped seeing him simply because it would appear to be improper with cases coming before the court. When he got off the bench, we resumed our friendship. And he was just a lot of fun. He loved full of all kinds of jokes and stories. What would you say it meant to the black community to have Thurgood Marshall on the bench of the Supreme Court? Oh, it meant a great deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a, well, he was a folk hero even before he became a judge. He was on the cover of Time magazine twice. And he was... Uh, an inspiring speaker. He, he really whip a crowd up. Do you know what he thought about going on the bench and what it would mean? Oh, I think he never hesitated for a moment except that. He did hesitate when the, uh, Lyndon Johnson offered to make him Solicitor General. I was in his office shortly after he got that phone call. And he had a, one, he had a lifetime appointment on the Second Circuit. He had to worry about supporting his family, starting a new career after he said, Johnson said to him, That's, this will not be the end of the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I think that's great. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. We You're very welcome.